because no one wins by trying to chase after the competitors. By definition, you're chasing. You win by making them chase after you. And the only way that you can make them chase after you is for you to chase after what's leading everything, which is the actual market. Welcome back to the Honest Marketing Podcast, where you learn proven strategies to grow your business without selling your soul. I'm your host, Travis Albritton, and my guest today is Skylar Reeves. Skylar Reeves is the co-founder of Ardent Growth, a marketing agency that works with other marketing agencies to help them establish just killer content marketing strategies that drive strategic goals for their business. And so in this episode, we cover a lot of topics. Um, definitely lean into the chapter markers and the timestamps to hop around if you want to, uh, but really start off with just his origin story of jumping into marketing and how he transitioned into that, the specific things that they have done internally with their team to optimize for what he calls throughput or key deliverables for clients. If you're in any kind of service-oriented B2B space where you're always trying to think about how to best leverage your team members and really get the most out of what you can produce to get the best ROI in the mind of your clients, then that's gonna be a great section for you. And then we go into their unique approach to developing content strategy. How do you figure out what to talk about, who to talk to, and you know, then choosing the right communication platforms to leverage in order to get strategic results and growth for your business. So definitely stick around to the very end where I'll give you my number one takeaway from my conversation with Skylar as always. But here it is, let's dive in. Well, Skylar, welcome to the Honest Marketing Podcast. Super happy to have you here and to dig into all the questions that I really wanna ask you for my own selfish purpose. So, you know, again, just thank you for being here. Thanks for having me on, Travis. Appreciate it. So let's start off with just a little bit of context, uh, who you are, what you do, and then the work that you do at Ardent Growth. Yeah. So my name is Skylar Reeves. I'm the founder and CEO of Ardent Growth. We, uh, the work I do is, is varied. I tend to uh, always try to find unique and novel problems, but the work that the company does uh, specifically is tied around content marketing um, across whatever channel or media that we have to use to, to reach a target audience. And how did you get into content marketing and, and the company you have now? Because this isn't your first your first into marketing, like you've had a track record. Um, what was kind of the origin of, of where you're at now and the, the business that you have now? Yeah, so I, I think uh, in, in my mind, I don't think I came from an unconventional background, although some folks tell me that, that I may have. So I... Um, out of high school, went and did a stint uh, with the military. I was a combat medic with the Marine Corps, um, specifically within the Fleet Marine Force. Um, towards the end of that, I decided, okay, I'm ready to go get an education. And, uh, you know, gave me an opportunity to grow up, went and got educated, uh, studied computer science philosophy in college. And I've been doing design pretty much my my whole life, but I never really thought of it like uh, as a profession, just thought of it as something I enjoyed doing. And... Uh, right after college, I went and worked in the logistics industry where my main focus was on algorithms. And then I evolved into business process uh, improvement, things around operations and just how to just improve things across the board when it came to um, efficiency. And being one of the few people at a very outdated company um, that they knew how to they knew that I knew how to code. And I guess they assumed that. Uh, that must mean I know how to develop a website. I had never developed a website in my in my life at that point. Um, all of my work was, like I said, predominantly math and or um, just core algorithm work. And I said, sure, I can figure it out, develop the website for them. Um, and then that quickly slotted me into sort of a marketing role there. 
And as I began to explore it and learn more about it, that's when I learned about, you know, SEO, content marketing, how, you know, you can leverage content across different channels, things like that. And started to really like it. I saw it as a nice balance between two passions that I had, which were um, the data analysis side of things, solving problems uh, from the computer science side and the deconstructing arguments and explaining things in writing when it came from the philosophy side. And so started consulting and consulted for um, several different companies, a uh, few tech companies, and uh, got a stint as a CMO for a running startup company. And we did that for about, I think I did that for about two and a half, three years. Um, and then uh, bowed out from that as they uh, were going to Y Combinator, things like that. And so then I reached the point where I realized, uh, well, I think I'm losing money working for this logistics company. So <laughs> struck struck out on my own and started this business thing and uh, had no background in business and, and have been uh, steadily learning ever since. Well, and, and that can play to your advantage too, right? It's like you don't, uh, if you don't come from a traditional background, you don't make the traditional background background mistakes. Yes, I suppose like there's there's less assumptions, right? Like maybe you don't paint yourself into quite a, quite, uh, quite a corner and maybe think uh, just apply the standard principles of the scientific method of just discovery, you know, and uh, hypothesize, test and repeat. But at the same time, there's there have been plenty of things that I think had I had some guidance or a, or a good mentor prior would have definitely helped um, short circuit the uh, you know my my learning curve and paid off that ignorance debt a little bit faster. For sure. Well, we you know everyone can benefit from mentors, but yeah. you know the school of hard knocks is undefeated as far as uh, yeah. giving you the right here lessons. We, here we are, right? <laughs> right. Here we are. Here we are. So I want to talk about uh, your company, Ardent Growth. Uh, one because it's what you work on, but two because the clients that you serve also happen to overlap perfectly with my personal business model. So I'm really excited to, to dig into what you do. And, uh, and I, and we align in a lot of ways in that, you know, I believe content marketing has so much untapped potential for brands and businesses that kind of overlook it in favor of direct response or performance marketing, where it's like, sure, you can throw more money at something, but at the end, at, at a certain point, you're going to run out of people to spend money to get in front of. And then how are you going to sustain any kind of, measurable success. Uh, but you have, you, you cater to marketing agencies. So companies whose business model is marketing for other businesses, N not, not a, a ideal customer avatar that many people would think, oh yeah, that's, that's a great market to tap into. Uh, so, so where did you see that opportunity with helping marketing agencies with marketing themselves? Yeah, I think it's, you know, we, I think most marketers, at least in my experience, especially marketing agency founders, um, we're really great at marketing our own customers, but we're not the greatest at marketing ourselves. Not that we couldn't be. It's just a prioritization issue that I think we run into a lot of times. It's a resource issue. Um, we often either find ourselves too busy to do it ourselves or too incapable of quite letting go of the reins to let others do it for us at times. And especially whenever it's internal junior staff or things like that. And it, you know, unless you've, unless you're, you know, probably 15, 20 million up or you're extremely good at um, delegating or don't have a marketing background yourself, then it's a lot harder, I think, to delegate to junior folks. And so, you know, historically we worked with, all sorts of different types as we were figuring out, just like I'm sure many agencies do. Over time, though, we had a few agencies 
who they liked our content. They liked some of the stuff that we had done. They'd seen us do prior. Some of them had reached out to us. One of them was actually a former competitor uh, that we directly competed with whenever we were niched down on a particular service uh, for an industry. And they said, hey, how would you feel about creating some of our content? And so we said, sure, why not? Um, and, uh, it was, it was perfect. And after working with them, I talked to the team internally. I said, you know, how do you folks feel about this? Did you enjoy the projects? Like I enjoyed it, you know, and, uh, we turned out we did. It was, they were one of the easiest uh, customers we'd ever worked with. We're actually still working with them today, three years later. And, um, and so we said, okay, let's try a few more agencies then see if anybody else needs, you know, content or whether it's at a high level that they can, they can't really get internally or, um, oftentimes it seemed like the resources internally would be, you know, a client fire comes up, they've got to, you know, do X, Y, Z for a customer. And it really makes it hard to, um, to, you know, to pull people toward that. And so we started doing it for other agencies and, uh, we liked it. They liked it. So we kept doing it and, uh, and that's where we're at today. So, it's uh it, it definitely wasn't something that i you know thought of from the beginning it, we just sort of fell into it after uh, after one of them reached out and it turned out to be a, a pleasurable experience for both sides yeah those can be some of the most rewarding pivots when you're not even looking for the opportunity it just kind of smacks you in the face and you're like oh well here we go who knew and then uh yeah. you know three years later it's like you've you've carved out a completely different direction that you couldn't have even anticipated but you know it it was already the opportunity was already proven you weren't like testing some edge case business model idea. It's like somebody came with a problem and they, they want us, they want to spend money with us to go fix it. And do we want to set up a system to repeat it? And we both knew um, what was nice about this particular customer is that, you know, or this, this type of market that we work with is that we don't really have to explain anything to them. They get it. We get it. And they don't have to explain anything to us either. We understand what they do, who they do it for. Um, of course, there's sometimes a little bit of learning curve whenever we're going to work with somebody who works with an industry that we've never worked with before. And um, usually at that point, we're diving in to do some pretty in-depth market research on their behalf, but we never get pushback on it because, you know, oftentimes they've never done it, which is surprising, um, but not surprising at the same time of uh, how few marketing agencies have actually done legitimate qualitative and quantitative market research on their industry to figure out where their numbers and constraints are at. Um, but you know, we get to speed on the, on the audience pretty quick. It's usually really easy to talk to internal sales or the founder themselves. And, uh, and, and what's really nice too, is that I think for on their part with us is, you know, we, we're a team of what I would call like high level strategists for the most part. And so, uh, it's a, they're able to get a level of quality that they just couldn't get otherwise or would sometimes be too cost prohibitive or if they were to hire people at that level it, this might not be something that they would have them working on they would probably have them working on um, different sorts of objectives um, or running client accounts things like that so i mean that's a great position to be in where you know agencies can get a bad rap of you know they promise promise the moon and they deliver next door uh and you know it's if you really want to have staying power and develop those long-term relationships you you really want to be able to put yourself in a position where you can demonstrate a skill set that is above market value for what they could get elsewhere. Um, that they really do see you as a partner in what they're doing instead of, we'll outsource this for a bit, but really the long-term solution is to figure it out internally or, you know, 
they, they can't really do what they say they could do. So, so that's great that you're, you've been able to carve out that position. Don't, don't be wrong. I always encourage folks to figure out how to build it internally eventually. And we're pretty open playbook with folks. So we're like, Hey, you know, here's what we'll do. We're going to get you where you need to go, help you, you know, accomplish your one, two year goals, whatever the objectives are. Right. But it's like our playbooks are open. Feel free to take them and use them. If you want to use it for your own services, if you want to use it to hire internally, we'll help you out. Just don't poach our people. That's all we ask, you know, <laughs> that's fair. And, and beyond that, yeah, beyond that, it's, um, I like to see people, uh, you know, thrive and grow on their own. It's, uh, and I think it's good. It's the same reason why maybe you don't want to stick with the same particular customer for too long unless, um, you know, unless what you're doing is more of a commoditized, productized type service. Uh, because over time, you, I think you do inject new life, new blood, new ideas into the, um, into the mix. And so, yeah, we always encourage people to, to either try to grow and do it themselves or, or begin to take some bits of it, um, you know, themselves internally as well. So speaking of giving away the farm and, uh, trusting people to work with you when it's beneficial and then, you know, internalize different processes when it is, uh, you know, something we were talking about offline before we started was this idea of, uh, optimizing team utilization or, or how do you streamline your internal processes to make the most of the resources that you have? Because any service-based business where you're delivering something to a client or a customer and there's hours attached to that or deliverables attached to that, there's always a tug and pull of how do we maintain the quality of what we do, do so in an efficient manner that doesn't burn out our team, but allows us to you know, deliver a level of service that really delivers for the client. So what are some of the things that you've learned internally as you've constantly looked at your own processes to really capture that balance well? So this is sometimes a contrarian answer, but I think if people kind of reason it out, it tends to make a bit more sense. But one thing I think that most folks get wrong is uh, an overfocus on utilization and less of a focus on throughput. They need to put more emphasis on throughput and less on utilization. It'll just sort of shake out. I'm not saying don't track utilization. It's useful. Um, but it's, it's not the end all be all. If you constantly index towards utilization, you will burn out your people. You will reduce the quality of work. You will encourage multitasking and context switching. And that's just going to eventually, you know, you're going to see ramifications across client churn, across employee churn, across your own, like mental well being, you know, and things like that. And so, and then real quick, what, what, when we say utilization, how would you define utilization versus throughput? Just so people have context. Sure. So capacity is the total number of hours that you have available to do a thing, right? Utilization is what percentage of that capacity are you actively um, able to, uh, whether it's billing, so you could consider that active utilization or um, what would be total utilization is just the total number of, um, of hours spent um, from the available capacity, just divide the numerator by the denominator to get the, the percentage. And then throughput is the, uh, you can think of it the, the way we define is the, the total number of valuable work items delivered to a customer. So it's, uh, if you're, let's say you produce, you know, blog posts or you produce, uh, social media posts or you produce podcast episodes, right? Throughput is just how many episodes did you produce? And usually um, benchmarked by some period of time. So how, what was your throughput um, within a given week or within a given month, right? And so the a key point there is valuable work items. 
So that doesn't mean every little task that you complete. It means what tangible thing you, did you deliver to a customer that they perceive as valuable? And so if they don't perceive it as valuable, it's, it's, it's really just sort of a subcomponent of something bigger or you're selling them something that they don't, they don't really need. Um, so a lot of folks will focus on, uh, when you focus on utilization, what happens is you're trying to balance, um, a, uh, how many hours can I get out of this person? Right. So a lot of people, even when they try to focus on say a 70 to 75% utilization to, to be sort of a, what's quote unquote considered an ideal balance. Um, I don't think that that's useful because what you don't see are the hidden opportunity costs of that, that you're, that you incur from the context switching that comes as a byproduct of it because with utilization also comes utilization per account. And so people will talk about not wanting to over service a customer. So let me preface this by saying, if you bill hourly, utilization probably is the way to go, but then you need to be thinking long-term about how you can get away from billing hourly. In my opinion, no one really wants to pay hourly. Um, people would much rather pay for an outcome. Um, that being said, if you're doing work, that's obviously completely new. It's a very unknown novel problem. Sure. Bill hourly. Right. But then try to figure out how to scope some sort of tangible, like outcome around it in the future. But, um, if you focus on say delivering, uh, whether it's an actual like deliverable, like a podcast episode that's produced and live and, you know, uh, syndicated across networks, right. Or whether it's, um, you know, X amount of revenue increase year over year or a new hire that if you're recruiting agency, let's say you, you help someone, uh, you know, you help find a new director of XYZ department. That would be something that I don't think that, uh, you need to be focused on, am I over-servicing? Because if you focus on over-servicing, you're always going to be at odds with the amount of value that you can actually deliver. I believe in um, figure out how to deliver, deliver the maximum valuable, like value possible, and then from there begin to figure out how to make it more efficient, whether that's stripping elements of it away that aren't really necessary, whether that's a role, whether that's a step, whether that's a, some piece of a deliverable that the customer doesn't really care about and doesn't really make that much of an impact, or whether that's just looking at your process and identifying where are the bottlenecks, how can we reduce, um, you know, the total time that it takes. And that's where metrics like, uh, active time, cycle time. So active time is what was the actual amount of hours that you spent on this, um, or days. That's how we tend to measure it. Um, uh, or half days and then cycle time. What was the total time it took to complete? Cause that's the other problem about utilization is when you, when you focus on it, let's say you spend seven hours doing something, but let's say it takes you three weeks to do because you're context switching and trying to balance that across different customers. Cause you want to keep them all happy. What you end up doing is you kind of keep all customers kind of, you know, they're still around, right? But none of them are exactly excited or delighted. And whereas if you just reduce the amount of work that you have in progress, any one given time and just focus on throughput for that individual customer, you'll end up, believe it or not, it's a paradox, but you'll, you'll end up actually getting more done um, in less time and delivering more valuable to customers on, on the back end. I didn't believe it when we first started doing it, but hey, it worked and uh, I looked at the math and um, across several different folks that we've seen put it in place now too, and now I'm a believer. So 
but uh yeah happy to elaborate keep elaborating on that if you want but um but feel free to to interject and get some clarification on things if you need to i mean it, it makes intuitive sense to me to you know rather than focusing on the hustle of the creation process focus more on the outcome and the deliverables and optimizing towards that direction um i'd be curious how you communicate because because within that especially if it's a client facing role like an account manager depending on the level of service that your clients have come to expect from you if it's like hey i'm just used to getting a 15 minute reply window whenever i send you an email because that's just how we've interacted in the past and now you want to shift them to be able to focus deeply on specific tasks so they're not always trying to multitask in context switch uh, have you run into any instances of, of either yourself or companies trying to implement this and retraining their clients to help in the long game service them better, but readjust some expectations in the short term? Not uh, so we haven't. That's that's probably because we kind of approach it from this way from the get go. I've been up, like from from the very beginning. I've always told customers I check my email twice a day. I open up Slack once a day. That's about how the response time is going to work, right? And and it's like that kind of across the board. That being said, the way that you can mitigate it is one, just have a conversation with them. Most people are are adults and they understand if you say, "Hey, look, no one likes context switching. Literally, no one does. <laughs> like, no one really enjoys right. it, right?" So you say, "Like, look, I'm context switching all the time. That's also affecting my ability to be able to deliver you the most valuable that I the most value I possibly can because of that." here's going to be the windows in which I'm going to be able to respond. I'm doing this because just give people mm -hmm. a reason. Most people are pr pretty understanding. If they're not, you could replace them. You, you probably didn't need them anyway. I've yet to like, we've helped other agencies do this too. And I've yet to have anyone just blow a gasket. That being said, if you work in an industry where you think you have people like that, ideally what you would end up doing is, is having a separation of roles between um, so Paul Graham talked about this and his famous essay maker, the maker schedule, manager schedule, right? An account manager is a manager, right? Like they live in that world of 30 minutes, hour increments, right? And so they're constantly context switching. That's normal. People who live and work in that role, it's fine for them to context switch. That's the role, right? But if you have people who are responsible for any sort of deep work or really getting things done. So who your doers are, who's working on delivery on the back end, right? These people should not have to operate underneath that schedule. They need longer periods of time to be able to stay focused so they can get a thing complete because it's, it's much, it's much easier. So like the, the mantra we say is, uh, for, it comes straight from Kanban, which is, uh, stop starting, start finishing. Right. And so just work on the thing until it's done. Don't pull something else into the pipeline until the first item's finished because there's switching costs. There's also a restart cost, right? Whenever you put something down for a while and then you have to pick it back up, you have to kind of regather your thoughts on where you're at. And that's, that's the easy way to go about it. So that's the way I would split it out. Um, if you can, now, if you're in a position where you can't really do that, uh, split your time schedules that way then where maybe the first half of the day, um, is, is, you know, maker time or, you know, however you want to do it. I think it often works better if you make it if you make the first half of the day maker time, um, just because if you try to take meetings in the morning, it'll de derail your entire afternoon most of the time. But if you split your day like that, I think most customers could be understanding to that, um, knowing that they, you know, get a standard response window of 15, 30 minutes or whatever, you know, during the afternoon. Again, I really, and I, I, I would break those habits as fast as possible. Nothing is ever really that urgent that it needs to be 
responded to within 15 minutes. Um, and if there are like, be very, very clear about what those are in your SLAs. Um, and if that's the case, like they would probably just call you anyway, you know, or, you know, call the business or something. Yeah. If there's a five alarm fire, you're going to know <laughs> they're going to be breaking yeah, down exactly. your door. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. So I would love to pivot to, uh, specifically your approach to helping agencies and your clients think about content marketing for themselves and marketing for themselves, you know, cause there's obviously the executable strategy of we'll create LinkedIn content or create a podcast or do some blog content or webinars or, you know, X, Y, and Z. But in order for any of those strategies to pay off long-term it, you have to start with the right strategy and the right approach and point of view and perspective. So I'd love to hear your process or, or your approach to helping companies figure out what's our voice what do we have to say? What's our point of view to then populate all of that content marketing in a way that's really going to drive strategic growth for them? Sure. So it's going to be very similar to uh, what folks would do for their own customers. So one thing I'll kind of preface by saying is that, you know, anytime I hear anyone talk about LinkedIn strategy or podcast strategy or blog strategy, all I hear are communication channels, right? Like none of those are strategic. They're all tactical communication distribution channels, right? Strategy exists at a layer above this strategy is, uh, operates at the business level and it's what informs all downstream motions uh, of your organization across operations, success, finance, marketing, sales, etc. Strategy is answering five core questions. It's defining what does winning look like, having a very clear idea of what winning looks like to you. And then from there, once you know what winning looks like, it's answering the questions. Where am I going to play such that I will win? How will I play such that I will win the way that I want to win? And then what must be true? So what are the must have capabilities we need to have in place in order to win how we want to win, where we want to win? And then finally, what are the enabling management systems that are going to, that are enabling management systems, meaning what are those systems that are going to be necessary? Um, not all the, you're going to have plenty of other systems, right? Like you're, you're, the way you do your PL is probably not going to be an enabling management system for a marketing agency. It's very, very important, but it's not an enabling management system, uh, depending on your size, unless you're trying to acquire people and going through that whole game. Right. But the, then the enabling management systems are what enable all of those things, uh, to exist and work the way they need to. But the harder strategy is where to play and how to win. So what you have to be very, very clear about there is where can you create a, disproportionate disproportionate competitive advantage in the market such that um, not that you're guaranteed to win but it gives you the best possible odds right so that you can stack the deck in your favor and this is a lot of hypothesis testing it's a lot of um it's a lot of you know it's less looking at the competition uh, which i know a lot of folks do and it's more looking at your market so getting very market oriented what does the market want what are they telling me if you just turn to them most of the time, instead of looking at what your competitors are doing, you will stay far ahead of your competitors because no one wins by trying to chase after the competitors. By definition, you're chasing, you win by making them chase after you. And the only way that you can make them chase after you is for you to chase after what's leading everything, which is the actual market. So what we start with is just standard marketing 101. Identify where we're playing. What do we do, right? Start there. And then from there, start talking to the market, do some qualitative interviews, 
there's no specific number, 5, 10, 15, whatever it's got to be, right? If you're geographically centered, sure, like segmented, however you want to. So do, do some qualitative interviewing. Then begin to uh, segment your market if you haven't already. Segment it out. Identify what your total addressable market looks like, where the value is. Pick a target segment. Figure out your positioning, um, which comes from the qualitative messaging, right? And when it comes to, um, or it comes from the qualitative interview, sorry. And then from there, do your, uh, if you have the means available, which it's not really that hard these days, you can run it on Facebook ads or something like that to get enough responses. You only need like 96, no matter what your audience size, what, what your um, population size would be, but do an actual quant survey. All you have to do is really ask a handful of questions. Here's a set of brands or, you know, if uh, let's say you're an agency that specializes in marketing for lawyers, right? Okay. Surveyed 96 to hundred lawyers. Let's say it's a hundred, right? Survey them, ask them uh, if you can do it through a third party that that works great too. You don't, you don't have to do it through a third party, but if you can make it appear as if it's through a third party, that, that works a bit, um, a bit better um, though. You don't accidentally bias things, but ask them. What marketing agencies have you heard of and ha have them just write them down, list them out, right? That's going to, they're going to list, let's say four or five. And then from there, uh, that's going to tell you two things. One, it's going to tell you, um, your level of unaided awareness and your level of top, top of mind awareness, whoever the first one is, right? And across, let's say 25 people listed your brand first, right? And then, okay, you got 25% top of mind awareness. Then after that, next question. Show them the names and logos, right? Which of these marketing agencies for lawyers have you heard of? They select whichever ones they've heard of, right? That tells you your aided awareness. These are like, it's like marketing one-on-one, right? It's very, very simple, but it's, it's there for a reason because you'll, you end up with some really great insights after the fact. And most agencies don't do this for themselves and they really, really should. It's, it's very enlightening. Um, after that, you're asking, okay, who have you or would you consider if you're in market for services for X, whatever it is that you do? Which of these agencies would you consider? They will then tell you that. Okay. Now you know what your consideration is, right? And, um, across the market. And then, uh, if you, if you had to pick one, who would be your preference, right? And then that will tell you your preference because they can only pick one. So not only does that tell you where, what your numbers look like across the market, and it's a representative sample if it's truly random, but it will also tell you what your competitors look like across the market. And this is about the only time I think it's useful to actually look at the competition. And it's because it gives you a landscape to understand where their weaknesses might be, because it can tell you where you might want to play because you want to play in an area where you don't have competition if you can. Right. So identify where they're weak and you're strong. And that's probably where you want to play. And when you look at those numbers, though, the next thing you can do is say, okay, you take them literally just flip the funnel. It's, it's all it is a funnel, right? Awareness all the way down. You just flip it on its side and you do the math on it. And then from there you can say, okay, like where do we have our greatest drop off at? Right. Uh, add a percent, um, uh, or percentage in terms of basis points to each one to say, okay, where would it be that if we increase this, we would um, have the greatest lift in terms of revenue that then becomes the greatest constraint of your acquisition um, across the marketing and sales that you need to go tackle. So let's say you're, let's say you, uh, the people who do know of you really, really prefer you. You don't have a problem. Most of them, people who've heard of you, they consider you, but across the whole market, not a lot of people are aware of you. Okay. You have an awareness problem. 
That means you don't need to do direct, direct response marketing for the most part. You can, like you, you will get some people to become aware of you just in virtue of them receiving a email or, you know, or something like that. But you can reach much more of the market if you just, and a lot cheaper, if you just run more brand style educational, right? Just awareness campaigns on some social platform, right? Run that. Set your, let's say your awareness is, uh, you know, 15% of the market, right? Your next closest competitor is like 40. That's the other thing too, is if you look across competitors, you can kind of get a baseline on what's normal uh, in a given range. And so if everyone else is, you know, two X what you are or whatever, right? If the numbers shake out, you would say, okay, I have an awareness problem. All right. So then this year, uh, set your objectives, increase awareness from 15% to uh, 40% year over year. And now you have a very clear objective and you know exactly what the tactical execution needs to look like in order to fix that constraint. So always focus on the biggest constraint, whether that's in marketing or like what we were talking about earlier in terms of operations, whether it's to the constraint, the bottleneck in the actual um, throughput flow of the delivery or service that you're providing, right? So we start with that. And once you know that, that kind of just tells you everything else because it's what's going to tell you Okay, where's your market at? Where are they? You know, what channels do they use? You find out that out during the qualitative interviewing by asking them how they like to buy, what sort of things they consider, right? Things like that. That all bakes into your messaging and you just run that sort of messaging across the various uh, channels that you're going to use to reach them, whether that's LinkedIn, whether that's podcasts. I think the best way and what I recommend folks do is try to create some sort of, um, like center nexus in which all things can proliferate from. So, podcasting or some sort of event, um, like hosting a weekly live event or a bi-weekly live event, call it a webinar if you want, whatever. Um, just don't try to sell people stuff is, is the difference is get on, get on, just get on there and just, just talk to the market, answer questions, have some point of topic that you want to talk about. That way you can record it locally, capture, um, your audio video that you can then use to, uh, to push out across channels to get your thought leadership or your brand's opinion on, on things, whoever's you know, doing the, the talking, um, capture that locally and then go into a Q and a, you can use, um, that stuff as well to basically just give you a center nexus engine that you can turn into content for TikTok, talk content for YouTube podcast, right? Repurpose into a podcast onto LinkedIn. Um, maybe less so on Twitter videos, a little less popular on there sometimes on Reddit. Um, but even on the channels that aren't necessarily like very heavily video focused, well, now you have this core nexus of an idea that you can then turn into written content. I wouldn't, I'm not talking about just taking your podcast transcript and just pu publishing it. That's, that's kind of a waste of time. Like no one wants to read a transcript, right? Um, it's not closed captioning. It's, it's, a, there's a, there's a big difference here, right? Unless you have a really, unless you have a really solid editor, um, then they might be able to make it work. But even then it's, it's still difficult to read because the intonation is different, right? But you can take that and transform that into, a long form piece of content, whether that's, um, um, you know, whether that's a newsletter, whether that's, uh, you know, on your blog, whatever it's going to be, transform it a long form, format it, change the language, make it make sense for how someone might read. And you can also expand upon ideas that maybe you went a little bit lighter on. For example, in this podcast, when we're talking about active time, cycle time, it's like, what, you know, what are those? What's flow efficiency? Or, you know, what's, what's, a, how do you do a Monte Carlo simulation to forecast probabilistic values on what your capacity utilization going to be, right? Like this is the type of stuff that would be, can kind of be explained in audio video format, but is really better with visuals 
examples, you know, graphs that people can look at, scenarios, things like that, right? And those are great opportunities for that because people are going to want to learn more and they want a place that they can turn to to go deeper. But if you try to do the inverse and start with all of that content and work your way back, it is much more difficult. It is much more time consuming and you're always going to feel like you're trying to fit a square peg in a round hole or whatever the saying is, right? So, but if you start with the core idea in the beginning, it, it makes it much easier to, to produce um, after the fact. Not only that, it keeps you from wasting your time as much because you can test different ideas, see how people respond to things. You, you can begin to develop your own voice. And also by, if you do a live event, by doing the Q&A with people, um, even if it's only four, like, hey, well, look, you take sales calls one-on-one, right? Like, okay, sit on a call with four people and let them ask you questions. Like, not only do you develop relationships with them, but the questions that they have, I guarantee you the rest of your market has them too. And so it gives you this opportunity to refine and grow and rearticulate and reformulate what your answers to these things are, what your position in the market is, right? It's one of the best ways to do it versus just kind of sitting in our heads, thinking what the market wants to hear, coming up with this great offer that we think is so amazing, coming up with this great marketing campaign we think is so amazing, but we have never once talked to a customer. And then we put it out there and wonder why it falls flat. So that's our approach. And that's that's what you do with your customers, Mm -hmm. right? Like even if you're not talking to your customers, customers, you're, you're talking to the founder and they tend or, you know, or the head of marketing or a sales rep or a customer service uh, person, something like that, right? Like you're getting, you know, still insights on what the market mm-hmm. wants and rather than just kind of guessing. So that's our approach. Okay. So a lot of great nuggets in there that I want to unpack uh, and then kind of like transition a little bit to some more practical things. Uh, so first I loved the whole... I don't think I've ever heard of that strategy before. Like run paid traffic to a survey for your customer profile and let them just literally tell you what they know about the offers and the other people that are out there. I've never heard that before, but that seems like so simple because you can do that for like five bucks a day and get. It's way cheaper than SurveyMonkey. The the one, the one caveat I'll throw in there is like, depending on your market, if you're, if you're, let's say you're obviously when you're trying to do GL specific, it's, it's very, very easy. But if you're trying to do, you know, a very particular type of buyer mm-hmm. persona. Like if you sell to, you know, doctors, emergency, and, you know, emergency doctors at hospitals that are X, Y, Z, right? Like sometimes you might be better off uh, going a more formal route. Otherwise you're going to need to include disqualifying questions mm-hmm. in there too. Um, Typeform is probably one of the best yeah. ways to do this because just the way the routing and conditional logic works. But that way, when someone begins to fill it out, it can short circuit and be like, Hey, you know, thanks for your participation. Mm-hmm. Close it out. That way you're able to get to the responses of the, that you know, that are coming from people that actually fit your criteria, unless you're using something mm-hmm. like Clearbit and can more specifically, like if you're B2B, can more specifically target the titles. Otherwise you could run it on LinkedIn. It's going to get significantly right. more expensive, but, um, but that's another route. Don't, don't send it to your list. Don't send it to your email list. Don't send it uh, out across your social channels. Um, uh, like organically, uh, you can't like in the absence of any route, that it's talking to your market's better than, than not right. talking to your market. So by all means do it. But the, um, your data is not going to be, um, a representative sample because it won't be truly randomized. So right. just look Yeah. You're starting with the audience of people who already have awareness of who you are. Otherwise they wouldn't see it. Right. And then, uh, real quick on the execution of that, 
do you offer any kind of like incentive or reward for filling out the survey? Or is it just like, hey, you got five minutes, fill out the survey for doctors? Like, how do you position it, the value for the person coming in? So you can. Um, what we've seen it two ways. Like, so f- first off, offering any sort of paid incentive doesn't bias the results whatsoever. Uh, some folks might argue that, oh, yeah, but people are more likely to take surveys if you're paying them. Uh, yes, they are. But like there's there's been like go look at the academic literature on it if you want to. Like it's um, it's it's been very well established that it's it doesn't impact the actual um, uh, data that you get back, at least not in any sort of significant way. It may across some very particular niche audiences, but um, I doubt that we're going to run into that. Um, that being said, another route you can take, depending on your audience. So let's say you're working with any sort of, uh, we see this a lot in B2B. If you're working in B2B, which is where getting survey responses tends to be more expensive because you have to get uh, more targeted with the um, with who the respondent is going to be. One of the best approaches you can take there without having to spend money is um, offer to let them see the data when it's finished as it's anonymized. Because most of the time they're interested. They would like to know. Um, especially if you ask additional questions, um, across, let's say, you know, you've got your, you got your core, like five to seven questions. If you ask some additional questions interspersed in there related to the industry itself, um, almost like what you would do from a qualitative standpoint, like what are the common problems you face? Um, you know, where do you turn for information, right? Like they're interested in that information as well. And so if you extract that information out and then provide it to them, um, that is oftentimes a a pretty good incentive for them. I'm sure marketers have like, like founders agencies have seen, you know, uh, uh, Pete, Pete Caputo is pretty good at this with Databox, right? Real, but I was, you know, trying to get responses for a survey and, uh, we'll tell you, Hey, you know, and after you answer it, you can see the results of the survey and, a pretty high percentage, you know, or enough people take them. I don't know what the sure. exact percentage is. Enough people take them because we're interested. We would like to know what our peers are doing, where they turn to for information, right? Other B2B professionals are the exact same. Yeah, way. it's kind of like uh, YouTube polls where you like see the options, but you have to choose your choice before you see the results. It's like, oh, I wonder if other people chose my answers. And, you know, if I'm in the majority, the minority and, and all that kind of stuff. So that's, that's, I'm glad you brought that up because yeah, that doesn't cost you anything. It's like, just literally see the results at the end. That's fantastic. Um, yeah. And then the other thing that I loved about, you know, your approach to figuring out the strategy is, is directly connecting the strategy of what you're doing to the greatest leveraged opportunity. You know, if you think about the whole buying journey, which, you know, your process captures really well from level of awareness, problem, solution, product aware, you know, other competitors in the space. It's like you can really capture the whole buying journey from first discovering who you are to making a purchase decision. But then reverse engineering what to talk about and how to position yourself based on where you see the greatest opportunity to close that gap. Uh, Instead of just like, what do we feel like talking about today? Or somebody else wrote a blog on this, so we should write a blog on this. And it's, it's very reactionary instead of being really intentionally focused on what are we producing to drive a strategic result that is financially valuable to our business? And, you know, it, it, like, like you mentioned, it's like those very basic things that you take a step back and think, well, why would I not do that? But, yeah. you know, in, in our minds as people running agencies, it's like my own company does not pay me a monthly retainer to do this work. Right. This client does, so I'll do it for them. And then if I have time left over, which you normally don't, 
then maybe I'll get around to myself. It's, it's called equity. That's yeah, what it exactly. Pays equity, so. <laughs> <And> profit distribution. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so, you know, this has been really great and we're just really scratching the surface on this. Um, where can people go to learn more about your approach, to see the kind of content that you're producing on the communication channels that you have and just to connect with you and, and what you're doing over at Art and Growth? Sure, probably the best place to... Uh, to connect or see anything that's going on with me is going to be over on LinkedIn. Um, you could go to our blog, but, uh, you know, I don't write very much on there. Um, I need, to, I need to, um, I write more documentation than anything else. And it tends to be on, um, on our, uh, like in our, our get book, but, um, I don't, I don't follow my own advice at times. That's, that's part of the problem. But, uh, thus far I haven't really, um, haven't really need to. And that's something to be aware of too, is, um, if you're, marketing if you if you find that you get plenty of work through um, referrals then just continue to do that and um, promote the case studies and things that come off the back of it you don't you don't necessarily have to uh, adopt and do everything just because it's what everyone else normally does just do what works and when it's uh, when it's a constraint then fix it but LinkedIn's probably the best place um, and or if you're any slack and if you're in any sort of a uh, slack communities um, DM me what they are on LinkedIn. I, I might check them out. Uh, I'm in Superpath. It's a great community of, uh, of content marketers. Um, Jimmy Daly runs a, a great community over there. I'm in a few others. Uh, the Vault uh, with, uh, from Chris Walker at Refined Labs. It's a great one. Uh, it's a paid community, but it's a great place. But uh, yeah, LinkedIn's probably the best place. Uh, just tell me that where you heard about me or I probably won't pay attention to it just because of how many come in all the yeah. time. So uh, I think we... I think we all know what that oh, is. Oh, yeah. Like, it's like, LinkedIn. would you be interested in more uh, highly qualified prospects at, at no cost to you? And we'll just deliver this, you know, pipeline that's ready to go and just explode you to eight figures. Okay. Yeah, sure. Or the lead in with the uh, the seemingly innocuous, um, interested question about something and then the immediate pivot to and then buy my stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, those, those, are, those are the most endearing. <laughs> Yes. I mean, my, my favorite is when they mispronounce or like misspell my last name or they have like zero context. Um, you know, funny little anecdote, you know, cause we, we produce this podcast for YouTube and we post clips. So I love whenever I get inbound, uh, spam messages and it's like, have you considered repurposing your long form content into short form content? We can do that for you. It's like, all you have to do is go to the YouTube channel and see that I post shorts to know I already have this problem fixed, but thank you very much. <laughs> we, we had, uh, Two, two things often one is uh, a lot of people message me thinking that we're a SaaS company because we develop software as well but primarily to for a tech enabled service like we develop some software the dog has no time around building what we call the total searchable market so we can understand like exactly what content to create to rank in the shortest amount of time but the uh the the anecdotally one of the funniest ones that we ever had was when we first got started we focused on local businesses and i had written a guide this is years ago um, and was ranking number one for Google, my business guide nationally now ranked Google, everyone else. And we'd get the phone call about uh, wanting to know if we wanted help optimizing our Google, my business. Yep. Listing. <laughs> and I remember taking that call at one point in time, of course I was young and you know, whatever. And I was just like, we Google this for me. And they did. And I was like, there you go. I was like, yeah, good research though. But I understand it's everyone's just trying to hit sure. a quota. I get it. I don't, you know, uh, I never hold it, uh, hold it personally against anybody. Yeah. So. I don't, I don't take it personally. But, uh, I, yeah. I also just don't just, I don't justify it with a response either. It's just like, sorry, but no, no, I don't either. <laughs> it's every, every now and then I will. And it's, um, it's usually to provide mm -hmm. feedback. 
Uh, and the fact that they even get me to pause sometimes is sometimes perhaps telling. Maybe read those. By the way, read those emails. If, if any email ever does actually cause you to pause to read it, uh, that's like that. They, they might be doing something right from a pitch perspective. Mm-hmm. So worth noting. But uh, yeah, I mean, same thing when it comes to the work that you deliver for clients, right? Like if you're, if you're doing any sort of outbound for your own agency is, you know, maybe prospect and pitch and sell the way that you would like to be prospected, pitched and sold to. And you'll be surprised what results you'll get. Um, just, yeah, maybe come with a little bit of value in hand. Do what everyone else is not doing. And you'll be surprised uh, how often uh, you'll actually get a positive response. So. For sure. Well, Skylar, really appreciate your time and, and just all the expertise that you shared. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been a blast. Yep. Thanks for having me on, Travis. Enjoyed it. So I would say that my number one takeaway from my conversation with Skylar is that when you are looking at the opportunity for your business to leverage content marketing, whether that's live events slash webinars like we talked about or podcasts or blog posts or LinkedIn content, reverse engineer the part of the funnel where you can make the greatest gains. Whether you start with a survey or just look at your internal numbers and your sales pipeline and process, wherever you're getting the most drop off, use that as the inspiration for the content that you create because that's gonna then reverse engineer back into higher leverage results for your business than if you talked about something that maybe got a lot of impressions or a lot of lift, but wasn't going to move the needle as much. So just really appreciate his approach and philosophy when it comes to marketing and really looking at a holistic approach to your business. And I hope you took that away from it as well. So definitely check out the Skylar's LinkedIn profile, which is linked in the show notes below. Let them know you heard him on the Honest Marketing Podcast. We can connect with them. And uh, yeah, hope you enjoyed another interview here on the Honest Marketing Podcast. Until next week, be honest. (laughs) 